Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. In this episode, Reagan Donahue and Melanie Bathala from Newmark Knight Frank summarize their presentation on the impact of cognitive bias and corporate decision-making given at our 2019 Global Summit in Orange County, California. So excited to be here. I'm Reagan Donahue with Newmark Global Strategy with my colleague Melanie Bathala. Say hello. Hey everyone. <laughs> really excited to be here. So I think just maybe kind of kicking it off, mm-hmm. I'd love to share why we chose this topic. I think that you know a lot of people are wondering what on earth were you thinking guys to pick something so overly complicated in our world that we should really try to simplify more. And you know I think that For me, when I was with my husband a year ago in Vegas, we were hanging out by the pool, and he was reading this book, The Undoing Project, by the guy who also wrote the book Moneyball, and he talked about cognitive bias and, you know, the story behind the Oakland A's and how they decided, since they didn't have a lot of money, they were going to eliminate bias and they were going to make it a purely statistical decision in order to select their future players. And it ended up being a complete success. If you've seen the movie or read the book, um, basically lesson learned was there's a lot of bias out there towards certain things. And it kind of made me think a little bit more, and Melanie as well, when we're working in our world of real estate, sometimes bias can come to play and we don't even realize it. That's right. We're always biased uh, towards certain kinds of decisions. We don't even know we're making it. And this has to do with our interactions with other people in the workplace, but also with how we deal with data as consultants, how we deal with information as, um, as businessmen and women. And, you know, when trying to research this topic as well, <laughs> it was horribly difficult, if you would agree. I mean, yes. in the beginning, it was almost like the information didn't exist. And what I found fascinating was that this this level of psychology has only existed for the past two decades. And so I guess you could almost say we're kind of entering into a new frontier into how we're looking at human behavior. And that sort of falls along the lines in our world, which is great. So once we kind of you know get this figured out, then we can apply it to our everyday world. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So let's let's kick it off. I mean, you know, I heard you share the story, and so there's a couple different bias that people talk about. One of them is called normalcy bias, where if you're in a situation as a human being, you would sit there and just act like everything's completely normal and a total catastrophe and disaster, and move along like, you know, everything's going okay just because you wanted the bad situation to go away. I loved your story, Melanie, if you don't mind sharing, yeah. what happened to you in Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, so maybe it's helpful to know that um, I'm from New Orleans and grew up there, and I was 16 years old and a senior in high school when Hurricane Katrina hit. I was two weeks into my senior year, and it was a Friday afternoon, uh, and I remember that there was an announcement saying over the loudspeakers, like, school is canceled on Monday, Um, we have a hurricane hitting very hard this weekend, and, you know, you're not going to have school. And I remember rolling my eyes and thinking, oh, it's just another one of those terrible hurricane, you know, weekends. It's just a little bit of rain and, and everyone's hanging out at home. And it was just a, a silly school day off. But it was Hurricane Katrina that hit that Monday morning at very early in the morning. And I never went back to my high school again. My high school closed 
for three months and became a shelter. And then when it reopened, uh, we were sharing a high school with another high school. Uh, we, my school was going from 6 a.m. to 12, the other school was going from 12 to 6. And I personally had already begun high school in another school in Florida. And I never went back to New Orleans again. I graduated from high school with a bunch of strangers who ended up becoming wonderful friends later in my life. But um, I am a victim in that situation of normalcy bias. Like I, I really truly believed that everything was fine, that it was not a big deal. It was just another rainy, rainy weekend. And it ended up being a really catastrophic and in the end, positively life-changing event. Huh. I mean, that's insane, <laughs> yeah, <it is. laughs> to say the least, you know, and I mean, what Melanie and I haven't shared yet either. We're both actually from Louisiana, so we definitely um, are birds of a feather and a little biased towards each other, <laughs> uh, you know, but at, at the end of the day, this normalcy bias is one example, I think, that clients really don't take into account, you know, how this can impact decision making when the company is hit with a catastrophe. So. I know you're also doing a little research on 2008 timeframe and you know, you didn't really have to experience it as hard as, you know, I was there, man. It was rough. You know, basically everyone saw it coming. Everyone yeah. said the crash is coming. The housing market is going to crash. Things are going to fall apart. And then all of a sudden it did. And we woke yeah. up and we said, I had no idea that was happening because everyone's acting like business as usual. And so the learning from this, you know, this is just one example of you can't just walk into a scenario and pretend like everything's going to be fine yep. and expect for it to all just work out. So, by the way, this is just one example of so many that we want to share. You know, another one that I think that, you know, quite frankly, really got at my heartstrings when I read about it was the Just World fallacy. Okay. And it talks about bullying and it talks about different subjects, but it Basically, it talks about people's need to, like, you know, tend to blame the victim when they believe people are failing and they deserve it. So, for example, in any scenario, 42% of the time, if someone's being bullied, they blame the victim. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reason this could be bad for employees is, I imagine, in a working world, if an employee is disengaged, you could blame the employee for right. not being fully engaged and not giving the effort towards, you know, that part of it but you know the reality is how are we taking into account you know our side of this and how are we taking and the know, environment as well yeah, how are we owning that and so right. you know that's just one other example but then you know thinking of other situations where you know some of the reason that these bias exists is us as cavemen we right. needed those right exactly so why why do we even have biases i think a lot of our research has just been about biases being this negative thing that we all do. Our brain makes these shortcuts and we make very quick decisions without even realizing that we're making them half the time. And I thought your, your research on the background of why we have biases is really helpful. So could you tell us a bit more about that part? Oh, you want to learn about why the cavemen yes. did why they did? Yes. <laughs> so I, I love this part. I love going back to like why we do the things we do because of our ancestors and the cavemen. And, you know, essentially at the end of the day, if you think about it for them, everything boiled down to the emotional brain and everything about bias was about survival tactics and so their bias back in the day one you know famous bias in modern times confirmation bias their bias of confirmation bias was if there's a rustle in the bushes I'm going to already confirm my understanding that that rustle in the bushes means it could be a saber-toothed tiger so I will therefore get the heck out of Dodge 
Whereas in modern times, the reason why things like confirmation bias are hurting us is people believe and research and go deeper to confirm what they already believe. They'll right. actually spend 35% uh, more time reading a research paper that already confirms their existing beliefs. And there was a study done on Amazon during the time that Obama was going for president, and they showed that the people that were buying his book that was positive towards Obama already were going to vote for Obama. And the people that were buying the book that was against Obama were already against Obama. And so it just confirmed that people were going out there to confirm their existing belief of why you shouldn't do something, you know, why it should already be that way. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons the cavemen survived. Right. They have other reasons, though. The, um, the strength in numbers, mm -hmm. but what they started to realize was that there's a limit to your numbers. And so, you know, we had done a little research together on this one with the Dunbar's numbers, and I'd love to hear, you know, you kind of summarize that. Yeah, so with the Dunbar's number, this is really interesting research that we talked about, which is that people can only have up to 150 people in their widest circle, right? But then in their closer-knit circles, you might have 50 people who are in your extended family and friends, and then 15 people in your close family, and then only five people in your actual very best friends or your family members who you tell everything to. So we ultimately, if you have 150 people, like that's a, that's a finite number. And if you make another friend, our brains actually can't handle that. And you might, without realizing it, drop a friend to bring in a new person into that 150 person group, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's like a glass of water, right? If you add right. one more drop, it'll spill over the top. And the reason I think that this happened back in the day from the cavemen was they were only around on average 150 people within their group you know, once they sort of settled down a little bit more and traveled less and were less nomadic. And it's it's interesting, though, if you've ever thought about a time where you've had one of your best girlfriends move away and you lose touch, it makes a lot of sense now. And so this <laughs> out of sight, out of mind situation, and for all the salespeople listening, you know, you actually calling on that client and continuously getting in front of them is not a bad idea because you will stay within their 150. <laughs> right. But it goes the flip side as a vendor or as a client, you have to be very strategic with who you let into that group of your 150 because I think at the end of the day, you can only have so many relationships so you don't want to be spread too thin and they won't be authentic and real and you won't get the most out of them. So I find that's you know a very interesting one that comes into play that the cavemen as well sort of kept within theirs. And then, you know, there's one that I know we discussed about the fundamental attribution error where, uh -huh. you know, we sort of talked about how, you know, different situations, you can tie it to the person and not the situation. And I just love the story going postal, if you want to share that. Right. So um, I think this is a statistic we were talking about where a person um, who works in a post office, for example, uh, you know, they're doing very mundane work. For two years, every two years, um, a person in a post office setting who is doing this very mundane work does what we call going postal, which is that something, you know, they kind of blow they up as a person. It. Yeah, they lose <laughs> it. They do something terrible. They might shoot out a blow up a building, yep. something really horrible. And that's kind of how the phrase going postal has even come together in the first place. And that is, it's, it's not necessarily the person's fault that they're in an environment where all they're thinking about is this really mundane work. They might be bored mentally. They might not have any interactions with other people. They're lonely. 
and yet we think of the postman, it's the postman's fault that something like this has happened, but it might actually be the environment and the isolation and the experience in their workplace that's causing it. And you know, one of my favorite examples is the guy with the stapler in office space where they just kept shoving the guy down or they took his cake away or they put him in the basement, they took his stapler away, and in the end the guy just blows up the building. I mean, he went postal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's it's these situations that can happen that you think it's so much easier to blame it on the person and not on the situation because mm -hmm. if you blame it on the person then you think oh that person's crazy that could never happen to me whereas if you blame it on the situation you could possibly fall under the same issue with that situation I mean I always go back to like we talked about Breaking Bad right, right with Walter White and you know if you haven't seen the show you got to watch it it's great a little plug for that but you know, he's a chemistry high school teacher, first episode finds out he has lung cancer, and needless to say, within the first episode, ends up becoming a meth cook for methamphetamines. You would have never guessed a guy like him would end up in that situation or acting that way, but the reality was he was driven to do this because he knew he might die, and he wanted to support his family. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it is kind of amazing the things and the lengths people go to or the changes people can go through given their situation or setting. Right. And when thinking about the workplace, I always think, you know, we're talking about people that are not performing, they're not productive, they're not, you know, their wellness is not intact, and we continue to blame the people, and maybe they're not working hard enough or they're not, you know, fully engaged or they're not fully productive, but, you know, sometimes it's important to realize that it could be the environment or the setting that's impacting that. Right. And, you know, I think that... Um, I do love the example that you had shared with me. We were talking earlier about groupthink, too, where, you know, another cognitive bias when we're coming to decision-making is what happens when we're in the room with a bunch of people. It's so much easier to agree, right? Right. So maybe it's helpful to just think about what groupthink is. So you're in a room with people, and the situation is maybe even like in a jury um, one person says an idea and everyone tends to fall in line with that idea, right? Rather than people saying, oh, I have another idea, let's think of another direction. It, people tend to fall in line with the first reasonable suggestion that's made. And that seems totally normal and acceptable, but there can be actual business consequences to that. So one of the issues that we were talking about earlier was um, the example of Swiss Airlines way back in the day. Um, they were known as one of the best airlines, a Swiss airline company, and uh, at the time they were doing very well. And their board of directors thought, "Okay, we're going to make, we're going to change up the board, and we're going to make some other positive changes, so that way everyone can get in line and be on this in the same direction about the future of our company." And what, in the end, what happened was they actually removed some of the important um, industrial engineers that they needed, and they cut out the people who were dissenting against the, the stream of thinking that everyone else agreed upon. And although it seemed like a, a very good decision in the moment, Swiss Air ended up doing very poorly and went bankrupt. And in, I think it was October 2nd, 18 years ago, they, m many people lost their flights and every, like they lost all their savings. And it was a really, it was a really big fallout for what was once um, a very popular and uh, great airline. Yeah, and you know, there's other some other famous examples that I don't know if they're appropriate to list on you know our podcast today, but we'd be happy to share if you want to email us. Not to leave that, <laughs> not to dangle that carrot. That's so mean of me. Uh, well, okay, I'll, th I'll throw out one. You know, at the end of the day, with groupthink, the reality is is the setting that you're in 
if you have someone in the room that can fire or hire people, that automatically changes the dynamic within the group. If there is a need to come to consensus within a given time period, that also will hinder the group thinking. So imagine how juries feel. Imagine how it is when you're collaborating within a group of you know teams and you have a deadline. You just need to get it done. And cohesion is incredibly important within groups, but it's extremely important as well to make sure that people aren't just agreeing to agree so we don't make some detrimental mistakes. So kind of want to... To finish it up with a, um, a reason why it's important to open our eyes, be more aware, and give ourselves into learning more about cognitive bias. Because the goal of all of this is to create an awareness, right? It's like going to a therapist. As long as you're aware that you've got things going on, you can work on them. If you're not aware and they're working against you, you don't realize what you're working against. So um, in this book, The Chaos Imperative, Ori Brofman, the author, talks about how the Black Plague is essentially responsible for the invention of the Renaissance and the printing press and all these fabulous things. And to connect it quickly, he essentially said the Black Plague caused lots of clergymen to pass away because they were by the bedsides of all the dying people. And then even the wealthy passed away from this, and so they lost their faith in the church, stopped donating money to the church. They started giving it, actually, to universities. And around this time, University of Florence popped up, Oxford came about, Cambridge came about, uh, so the Age of Enlightenment started to give birth. And then a step forward, the church needed to bring in some unusual stu- suspects because they were slowly withering away. So they introduced, you know, more of the findings behind Aristotle and, you know, new beliefs. And within this, there was a demand for more things to be written within the books. And by more of the demand, the printing press got its first kickstart. And it would have never had the demand for that because people used to only depend on the Bible. So... You know, if you think back on, like, one of the most glorious times in our history during the European times, the Renaissance is really looked back on in a really, you know, wonderful light. And that's just one example of overcoming certain bias that the church might have had against the Age of Enlightenment and the humanists at the time and opening their eyes to new things. And so for their situation, it required the Black Plague. I would challenge us to not go that far. (laughs) I would say let's look at it today and let's start being aware of what we don't know because we're not as smart as we think we are and, you know, we can always continuously learn and grow. Well said. Thank you, Reagan. Thank you, Melanie. (laughs) It's been so much fun to work with you. It has been. (laughs) And that sums up our wonderful podcast. Thank you for listening and joining us from Newmark Global Strategy on cognitive bias and how it's bad for business. Thank you, guys. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.